Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, your guide to everything love, sex, intimacy, and relationships. Each week, your host, Zach Beach, interviews new experts on love, including couples therapists, relationship coaches, sex educators, and best-selling authors. Learn the best tips and cutting-edge wisdom to better love yourself, others, and the world. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, everyone. I am your host, Zach Beach. And today's episode will just be slightly different from normal because of just how incredible my guest is today. Sonia Liebel-Mirsky is an incredibly accomplished professor and author and researcher. And those of you that have been listening to the show have probably noticed I try to have my episodes be about 45 minutes long. And what you might not realize is that usually the interviews go for about an hour, sometimes an hour 15, sometimes an hour 30. And when it gets edited down, it eventually becomes about 45 minutes. Now, Sonia is an extremely accomplished individual and a very busy individual as well. So the only way I could get her to come onto the show is if I promised we would be done in 40 minutes. So I'm going to give you the intro right now. I'm going to tell you about our guest, and then we're going to head straight into the interview. So for those that don't know, Sonia Lyobomirsky is a distinguished professor and vice chair of psychology at the University of California, Riverside. Originally from Russia, she received her bachelor's at Harvard University and her PhD in social and personality psychology from Stanford University. She currently teaches courses in social psychology and positive psychology and serves as the Department of Psychology's vice chair. Her research has been written up in hundreds of magazines and newspapers, and Sonia has appeared in multiple TV shows, radio shows, and feature documentaries in North America, South America, Asia, Australia, and Europe. Sonia is the best-selling author of The How of Happiness, A Scientific Approach to Getting the Life You Want, a book which has now been translated and published in 23 countries. She is also the author of The Myths of Happiness, What Should Make You Happy But Doesn't, and What Shouldn't Make You Happy But Does, which has also been translated and published in dozens of countries. I was so happy to sit down with her and have an awesome conversation on kindness, happiness, and connection. So without further ado, I introduce to you Sonia Leobomirsky. Hello, Sonia. How are you today? Hi, Zach. I'm doing well. Thank you. So thanks so much for coming on. I have so many questions. I'm so excited to ask you all these things about happiness and love and kindness and altruism because you have spent decades of research and work in the world on happiness, on what makes people happy and if happiness is a good thing. And one of your findings that I thought was quite interesting is that happy individuals construe their life events and daily situations in ways that seem to maintain their happiness while unhappy individuals construe experiences in a way that seems to reinforce unhappiness. So I'm curious if you could tell our listeners more about this and kind of what is the major differences between how happy and unhappy people deal with life events? Sure. Well, happy people tend to be more positive and reframe events, reframe adversities in kind of more positive, charitable ways. Unhappy people tend to 
uh, compare themselves more to others and sort of dwell on negative things, ruminate more. I used to do research on rumination, which is basically kind of dwelling about the same thing over and over again. And so, yeah, the first maybe 10 years of my career, I compared people who are happy, sort of, and less happy to kind of get a, a sense of what they're like, to get it sort of a window into their, into their thinking and, you know, how they think about things, how they behave, in part to sort of figure out if there's things that we could all change about ourselves to, right, to be happier. Yeah, I remember I was reading this article and it recommended anti-rumination strategies. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> I just kind of like loved the term. And I was like, oh, you mean like meditation and mindful movement? Because that's the world that I kind of come from. But what are some of those sort of like anti-rumination strategies? How do we get out of the negative feedback loop we often find ourselves in, particularly in today's challenging times? Rumination is very common. Um, and, and sometimes it's, it's, it's something that we need to kind of engage in, right? Like when there's a problem, we, you know, we we need to focus on the problem, but ruminating you often involves going in circles, right? It's like you're going from A to B, back to A, back to B. So you're not really resolving or really getting any insight into anything. And, and in terms of, you know, what we can do about it, you know, meditation is a, actually a great strategy because that's basically all about attention, right? And sort of being able to kind of manipulate where your attention is. But there's other kind of simpler strategies. Um, one of my favorites is is to kind of tell yourself to kind of designate a time of the day that's saved for rumination. Because when, when you're ruminating, it's so compelling. You're just like, oh, I need to continue ruminating. And it's really hard to focus on anything else. But tell yourself, let's say from 7 to 7.30 p.m. every day is my rumination time. <laughs> um, and it, it's sort of easier to kind of stop when you know that you can get back to it. And then often when 7 p.m. rolls around, then you don't feel like ruminating, right? So that's a strategy. Um, and, and, and then distraction is actually one of the best strategies you just have to find something that's truly distracting. For some people, it could be like playing basketball with your friends. Uh, for other people, it could be a movie. Some For others, a movie doesn't work because you're still ruminating, right? Reading often is sort of not very distracting, right? Because you find yourself rereading the same line over and over again because you're ruminating. But we all probably can find certain activities that are truly distracting. Talk, social support, talking to a friend, if you're not co-ruminating, right, can be, can be very effective as sort of an anti-rumination strategy. Yeah, it almost reminds me of the common phenomenon where like we have a big decision we need to make and we kind of like struggle and think about it over a few days or even a few weeks. And then like when the time comes, we just make a last minute like gut decision. And it's like, wow, if I, I didn't need to think about this for the this entire time at all. Exactly, exactly. And there's some research on sort of how to make decisions. And uh, yeah, I mean, sometimes sort of the gut is the right way to go. And other times it's not. So I, uh, yeah, there's, there's no sort of, uh, there's no sort of right answer to that. But again, I, I think the key is rumination is sort of going in circles. And so that's not good. That is not helpful. Problem solving can be can look similar to rumination, but that's when you're going from A to B to C to D to E, right? So you actually are like progressing in your thinking. One thing I guess I would say research shows that when you write, you're you're more likely to problem solve and less likely to ruminate because writing by definition kind of forces you to put your thoughts into kind of like subject, verb, object, you know, um, paths so that it sort of forces you to to sort of think through and be a little bit more systematic about your thinking, kind of step-by-step -step systematic thinking is what you want to get to when you're trying to make a decision or trying to understand something in your life. You know, when you mentioned how helpful writing can be, I resonated with that idea because I do love to journal. And I was thinking how we're often told to keep a gratitude journal in order to cultivate happiness in our life. 
And I'm kind of curious about the really glib advice that we hear and what actually works in terms of increasing our happiness. Because if you tell somebody you're in a bad mood, they'll easily give you advice on what you should be doing. So I'm curious, like in your research, what are the biggest myths around like what does not cultivate happiness? And what are some of the more effective practices that there is a lot of evidence for? Great question, because I think we really do need to look at sort of uh, evidence-based practices or practices that have, um, you know, empirical, an empirical base. Well, one answer is it depends. Um, mm. And, you know, journalists all hate that answer, right? Because they want to know, like, what, what, what works and what doesn't work. It depends on the person, right? So uh, I have a book called The How of Happiness, and one of the, and I offer 12 different sort of categories of happiness strategies. And one of the main themes of that is that fit, that you have to consider fit, right? So, and by fit, I mean, you know, we're all different. So we, we have different values, goals, cultures, you know, weaknesses, strengths, personalities, right? And so what works for me is going to be different from what works for you. And so just an example, you mentioned gratitude. I don't like to count my blessings. Um, I find it kind of hokey and not very meaningful, right? Like I just don't do it. But, lot, but the research shows and lots of people say that they that it's really powerful and meaningful to them, right? So that's a fit issue. So for some people, that's going to that's gonna be effective. Other people, it's not going to be effective. There are probably, there are some strategies that I would say are more kind of, quote, I don't like to use the word universal, but are kind of a little bit more universally effective. One of them has to do with connecting with other people. Anything you can do to improve or strengthen or maintain your relationships is going to contribute to your happiness. I can, I can pretty much guarantee that, right? By relationships, by the way, it could be your friends, family, it could be your pet, it could even be God, right? So I'm being very broad in that in that term. So so that's a strategy that I think lots of empirical base to that. But gratitude, you know, I focus on studying how gratitude and, and doing and kindness can increase happiness. And uh, so there's quite a few studies showing that, you know, when we help others and when we're, when we express gratitude often through, you know, one, one-on-one, like I might express gratitude to my mom or to my high school history teacher, or by writing a letter to someone that that can be very powerful and can make us happier, sort of thinking about what's good about our life and the people who've supported us. And so um, there's a huge empirical base to, to that, those strategies, but there are many others as well, including physical exercise we know can contribute to happiness, um, pursuing meaningful goals, savoring sort of the good things in your life, sort of relishing positive experiences can contribute to happiness. So, so so there's there's lots and lots of things we can all do to kind of sort of add up. You know, it's not just one thing, right? There's many things that can add up to contribute to our happiness. Right. Yeah. I definitely want to talk a little bit later about the importance of connection on our happiness. But you mentioned your book, The How of Happiness. Wonderful book. I encourage all our all of our listeners to check it out. And the cover of this book is a pie, actually, like a pie that you eat. And I was like, yeah, pie kind of makes me happy. But anyways, the pie is cut in a very specific way. And this is a reference to your kind of happiness pie chart, which looks at three factors, intentional activities, genetic set point, and life circumstances. So tell our listeners un unfamiliar with this concept about what are these, what roles do these factors play in our overall happiness? How is the pie cut? Sure, sure. Now, I should mention that the pie chart has been often kind of misinterpreted or sort of taken too seriously. So I, the way that I like to describe it now, and I have uh, my, my colleagues and I have sort of some articles to, you know, from anyone who's more interested in this um, in detail, but the idea is that there's really three kind of buckets of determinants of happiness. One has to do with our genetics, right? We all know there's 
pretty uncontroversial that some people are happier than others, kind of are, quote, born happier than others. So we know that genetics influence our happiness, but but they, they don't determine our happiness completely. Um, that's sort of one bucket of determinants is our genes. The second bucket is our life circumstances, right? So if you're, if you're in Afghanistan right now, you're not going to be happy, right? No matter what your genetics are. So if we're in a really dire life circumstances or really wonderful life circumstances, we're likely to be, you know, less or more happy. Uh, many of us, many of your listeners are probably kind of somewhere in between, you know, some, they might have, they might be sort of relatively comfortable, nothing really terrible, really, or really wonderful. Um, so life circumstances may, can matter when they're extreme, especially. So that's the second bucket of determinants of happiness. The third bucket uh, is the one that I, I focus my research on, and that's what is it that we can actually do that can make our us happier or less happy for that matter, right? Sort of how we think, how do we behave on a regular, uh, you know, basis? So those are kind of our like daily actions or daily thoughts and feelings uh, that can determine our happiness. So those are kind of the three buckets, and they're all important. And I don't, I, I don't like to. I, I, I gave sort of some percentages to them, but right now I would say don't really give them any kind of weight or percentages, just say that all three of them are important and it's going to depend on your particular situation. Well, it's interesting when you say all three are important. So when I think about how, how important is it, I think about, well, how much control do we have over it? Because when I think about, well, some people born happier more than others, does that mean that certain people are doomed to a life of, of sadness? No, absolutely not, right? So we know genetics, genes don't determine our traits, but they influence them, right? And so, but there's environmental triggers that can sort of turn them on and off. And and so, so they, yeah, so we do not need to be fatalistic. There, there are very few sort of genes that kind of determine things completely. I mean, even things like eye color, right? We can put on a green contact lens, right? To change our eye color. So, um, so we know that basically the way I think about it is that gen, that our genes kind of uh, create a set range from which we can kind of move around, right? And so for some people that set range is lower. So maybe it's between like a two and a, a six. For others, it might be between a, you know, a six and a 10. And so if our set range is lower than what, and by the way, I'm really speculating here, by the way, we don't really know. If our set range is slower than we like, then it just means we have to work harder, right? It's sort of becoming happier. So some of us are just kind of luckier, just like when you think about like uh, our, our weight, you know, some people are sort of naturally skinny and they don't have to work hard at kind of, maintaining a low, low, relatively low weight. Other people have to work a lot harder. So they're not doomed to be thin or fat. They just have to work harder at it. And I think it's similar for happiness. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And let's talk about, yeah, that work, that like intentional doing. Let's talk about what you call the intentional activities that we can do that have an effect on our happiness. And this is really one of the reasons I was really excited to talk to you today, because I personally am very steep in the world of spirituality and great wisdom teachings and philosophy. And I'm always curious if there's any science to back certain things that I hear up. So for example, one thing that I'm often here or even tell myself is that the secret to happiness is helping others be happy. That if we want to feel love, we should love others. If we want connection, focus on what we can give rather than what we can get. So what role does kindness, altruistic act, even selfless service play in our overall well-being? 
is it actually better to give than to receive? Absolutely. I actually have a, one of my studies literally looked at that where we looked at people in a workplace. Actually, we went to the Coca-Cola offices in Madrid, Spain. <laughs> oh, wow. um, so we had some people kind of be givers and other people were receivers. And we literally found that it was better to receive than to give, I'm sorry, to give to than to receive. What we found was that immediately the receivers were happier. It's kind of like your coworkers, their coworkers were doing all kinds of nice things for them. But in terms of longer term effects, it was the, it was the givers who showed, a, you know, increases in happiness, decreases in depressive symptoms, things like that. You know, uh, lots and lots of research shows that people who uh, are like in our studies, we do experiments, where we, which are experiments. These are kind of like clinical trials. But instead of sort of testing like a vaccine, we're testing a happiness strategy, like helping others. So we'll randomly assign some people to sort of say, do acts of kindness every week you know, for say a month. And then other people might be asked to do something else, might be asked to sort of keep a, a journal of their activities. So it's sort of neutral, but, you know, mildly positive. And we find that people who help others become happier and they also feel more connected. I think the, the question though, is it about kindness or is it about connection? So, because we have one study, for example, where we asked people either to do acts of kindness for others or to just socially interact with others. And we actually found no difference in happiness. So like both groups became happier. So it could be, that because most acts of kindness involve are not anonymous, right? Mostly we actually are helping people, you know, often face-to-face, -face, um, that maybe it's just the connection that matters. So, and, but we have another study where we're helping others did sort of give more benefit than just interacting socially. So th that, that question is still, still sort of left open to answer by researchers. But I do think that the connection really matters. And sometimes the connection is through sort of helping. And sometimes it's just, just, you know, it's another human that you're interacting with. We're social animals and that we are very much rewarded by interacting with others. Yeah, there's that kind of eternal debate about whether there is even a thing such as a selfless act, because when we do give kindness to others and take care of somebody who is sick, we inevitably feel good ourselves. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. So we um, so there, basically the reason that helping others makes us happier is kind of multiply determined. Right. So one reason I just mentioned is that it's just a social it's a, it's, it's a connection. Another reason you just mentioned is it makes us feel like a good person. Right. We make mm -hmm. we feel good when we're when we're helping others, whether it's anonymously through philanthropy, say, or or by you know taking your nephew to the zoo or something or giving a homeless person some some food to eat. But also it makes us just feel better about the world as a whole, right? When we're helping others, we just feel like the world is a good place. Like we're all kind of interdependent. We're all human, right? We're all connected to each other. It makes us sort of just feel optimistic, a little bit more optimistic, which is hard to do sometimes when we read the news. Um, so it's, 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 right, it's nice to focus on that, on that kind of optimism that the world is a, a good place. So that's like the modification to the famous Gandhi quote is you'll feel good if you are the change that you want to see in the world. <laughs> exactly. Exact, right. Right. I like that. I like that. Actually, I haven't thought of it that way. Right. Right. You'll feel good. Um, and, it, and, and by the way, that's one reason it's nothing wrong with that. That's one reason that people do want to change the world or help others as it does make them feel good. And so you could argue it's kind of selfish, right? That it's sort of <laughs> selfish, but, but I think that's fine. I mean, we, there are different motivations for everything. You know, some people argue there's no such thing as true altruism, right? Altruism is sort of this giving of yourself without any, you know, with, without getting anything back. And you could always argue that we're always getting something, right? Because it makes us feel a little bit good to to help others or to 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 or to to be a hero right to sort of jump in the river to save someone's life right we're we're doing good and yet and we also feel good about ourselves when we do that so 
Another piece of common wisdom that I hear and have read has to do with the law of diminishing returns. And in spiritual communities, it's often said that happiness cannot, or lasting happiness in particular, that cannot be attained just through the accumulation of material wealth. And psychologists too have this term like called the hedonistic treadmill because wherever we are in our happiness, it's only known in our relation to sadness and we get accustomed to whatever our circumstances are. So again, I'm curious if there are certain evidence to these ideas and also like what it might take to step off of the treadmill, so to speak, and put ourselves on an actual path that takes us forward towards increasing happiness. Right, right. Yeah, really, really good question. So when you talk about sort of money and like material pursuits, those are those are great examples of things that, that put us on the treadmill, right? Because when we say get a little bit of raise in our salaries or we win some money in a lottery, right? At first it feels great, right? We're like, oh, there's lots of things I can do with that money. But then we just sort of spend it or we we just sort of get used to it, right? And then we, we want more and more, by the way. But the hedonic tremble doesn't just apply to money. It applies to pretty much everything. I mean, even relationships, right? We might start a new relationship and at first it's like, oh, amazing. But then we kind of get used to it a little bit, right? We start taking it for granted a little bit. So we can become, we can sort of step on that treadmill in almost any domain in life. It's just that certain things like material pursuits are more prone to the hedonic treadmill. So how do we get off of it? And that's a really, that's kind of like a billion dollar question. One way is through gratitude. And you can think of gratitude as the antidote to hedonic adaptation. Um, or basically when you're grateful for something, you're not, you're kind of by definition, you're not taking it for granted. All right. So when I'm grateful for my new home that I was able to get with my money, right, I'm I'm not taking my new home for granted. And so I'm not adapting to it, right? I'm like, ah, oh, I'm so because you can, you know, you can every day remind yourself, you know, oh, I'm I'm really happy with this 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 new home. Uh, or, or with my job or with my relationship. Another another thing that's really important with sort of trying to kind of slow down or prevent hedonic adaptation is variety, surprise, and novelty, right? So, so we adapt to things that are kind of the same. And so, right, so that's partly why when we have more uh, higher income, we kind of get used to that higher level of income and then we want more or we start a job at first it's sort of dynamic and exciting and maybe after a while we kind of get used to it and it's sort of similar from week to week right and so we adapt to it but but a job that has a lot of novelty and variety and surprise maybe there's lots of opportunity for meeting people for personal growth uh for help for changing the world right for helping others uh we don't adapt as quickly right so novelty variety and surprise at least in the positive sense can help us kind of slow down or prevent some of that adaptation or just sort of step off the treadmill. But it's not easy, right? It takes effort to kind of be grateful, to introduce variety and surprise and novelty into our lives. Yeah, that's so interesting because this is also a common piece of advice to couples that want to bring more passion into their relationship is just that variety, surprise and novelty, because over decades of a relationship, we do, some people do experience like a certain level of boredom with their partner. Exactly, exactly. And I actually have, I have a piece um, in the New York Times from, uh, gosh, like 10 years ago or eight years ago. That's about the that was about the loss of passion in relationships exactly on this. It was kind of funny because I I um yeah, I got I got famous for a little while for like talking about loss of passion in marriage, which is not, maybe not a great thing to be to be talking about. But anyway, um, uh, my husband was thrilled with that. Uh, <laughs> 
But uh, it was about basically this very issue is that, you know, over time and it, but, but you're not just talking about passion. It could be just, you know, loss of sort of excitement and in, in various domains of the relationship. But the idea that that's normal for humans to kind of lose that sort of excitement and passion that we had at the beginning. And it's not easy to maintain it or to bring it back. But that gratitude, novelty, surprise variety is is basically the, the way to do it or to spice things up in a, in a, in a sense. So I want to run another statement by you. This again comes from kind of wisdom teachings. And this comes from the yogic saint named Swami Satchitananda. And he said this, he said, nothing can bring you lasting happiness, but you have it already until you disturb it. And I love this statement because a lot of different things to be drawn from it. But one of the, one of which is this deeply spiritual idea that our natural state, whatever that may be, maybe our true essence, is one of peace and spiritual joy. That's what like Ananda literally literally means is bliss, and we're often told of our blissful nature. And the quote is kind of connected to this idea that happiness is not found through fulfilling our desires, but not having any desire at all, just simply being existing, which again connects into the role that like meditation and just being can play in our happiness. So do you have any thoughts on this? And what do you feel about happiness being found through the fulfillment of desire or just a more longer lasting contentment that is the result of not having any desires either way. Mm, yeah, it's it's a beautiful idea. Uh, I mean, my first thought was like, wow, this is kind of the opposite to sort of the Hobbesian vision that like the natural state as life is nasty, brutish and short right there. <laughs> um, so I love this. I'm an optimist. So I love this sort of idea that, yeah, it's such a hard question. I mean, one of my, I guess, one of the answers, one of the sort of responses that I have is that maybe it depends on the person that is that for some people and and for some people it's one is it's the former and for some it's the latter. For some people it is sort of this is sort of a natural state of like, and if you don't disturb it, you will maintain that state of kind of tranquility and fulfillment. And and then for others, the others are just not going to be able to achieve that. And so they, for them, it's and it's really, and I guess I would say it's more unusual or rare, right? To be the kind of like the Buddhist monk who who's able to maintain that state. Are we all capable of that? I, I don't know. Perhaps that's kind of, as I'm a scientist, right? So I would say maybe that's an empirical question. Maybe we can sort of teach. We know we can teach meditation, right? But I'm not sure if we can teach someone to sort of maintain that state kind of their whole life. So, so I don't know. I don't know. I have to think about that some more, but it's such a interesting, such an intriguing idea. And, but also living, another thought is that living in our society, our society sort of by definition, right, is, is um, triggering and, um, you know, it's all about satisfying desires, right? So it is kind of hard to live in at least the Western society or maybe any society with the, you know, the notion that you brought up, right? Because um, it's it's sort of countercultural. Well, yeah, because uh, I've heard many people say that our society basically thrives on dissatisfaction. Like you're not going to see a billboard that says, you have everything you need, enjoy the moment. <laughs> I love that. I love that. But that's basically what gratitude is about, right? It's about kind of, about like sort of focusing on what it is that you have already, as opposed to what you don't have and what you want and need, right? So that's what gratitude is about. And lots of people, you know, are very much, um, I don't know, very much buy-in, I guess, or, or, or very much practice, practice gratitude frequently. So that's, I think, one step towards what you're talking about. But yeah, obviously, like our, our society advertising, you know, sort of everything is built on that. And then what about suffering, right? So 
Yeah. So what about you? Are you presuming that everything is sort of okay in your life and your child isn't really sick right now or, you know, or your basic needs are being met? I think you're presuming uh, at least at some minimal level because not everyone has that situation. So yeah, very fascinating question though. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) No problem. Yeah. So let's go back to the connection between connection and happiness. So you mentioned how a huge positive externality almost of altruistic acts is that it does cultivate connection with our fellow human beings. And that also propels us to happiness. So I want to kind of get into like what... What kind of connection are we kind of looking for and how to build it? Because you know, I'm thinking about the phenomenon of you're like walking down a very busy street surrounded by people, but you feel like very lonely and disconnected. And sometimes even like sleeping in bed next to your partner, you feel like lonely and disconnected in the relationship. So when we talk about connection is important to happiness. What does that look like? You know what I mean? It's an abstract concept. So how does it play out in, the, in real life to deepen our connection? Yes. Yeah, so lo- this is this is also another uh, really important question. So as you may know, loneliness is really is, isn't, I mean, I hate to, it's not an overstatement, I think, to say that loneliness is an epidemic in, in, in our culture and, and other other cultures as well. And so as you can, as you said, you could be lonely even when surrounded by people or having with a partner and family. And how do you, you know, researchers have thought, have tried and thought about this question for many years and decades, sort of how do we alleviate loneliness and, and increase connection? And uh, it's very, very difficult. By the way, situational loneliness is not as hard to alleviate. Situational loneliness, basically you move into a new city, right? And you don't really know anyone. And so you're temporarily lonely. What's really hard to, and that, that's not so hard to alleviate, especially now with, you know, lots of apps, not just for dating, but for friendship. But there are some people who are more lonely. I, I don't want to say kind of by nature, but just sort of they're high in this sort of trait of loneliness and they tend to be suspicious of other people's motives, right? So you can't just kind of throw, you know, interactions or friends at them because they just will not, they'll, they'll, yeah, they'll, they'll just be suspicious of their motives. And so one of my, one of the things that I'm trying in my work to alleviate loneliness or to increase connection is by asking lonely people to do acts of kindness for others, to help others. And so the idea is that it's not like they're charity cases that we're throwing friends at, right? Or social support at, but that we're actually asking them to help others, maybe other people who are even worse than themselves and that that might actually alleviate loneliness in part, but the jury is still out on that. Um, basically, the answer to your question is, is a very, very hard problem to solve. But a connection, I really think is probably the probably the key to happiness. If I had to choose one key to happiness, I think connecting to others is what makes life worth living. So anything that we can do to for ourselves or to help others connect to others is is really, really important. And by the way, that includes digital or even Zoom connections. I, I've actually thought a lot about kind of the, you know, what's better about in-person connection, which is, it is better, but, um, but digital connections also can serve a purpose and can be very important for some people who are say isolated in their communities. You know, they, they can't, they can't have the one-to-one person, you know, in-person connections. And so digital is better than nothing, uh, a lot better than nothing actually. So anyway, anyway, uh, a lot more needs to be sort of done and thought about and, and researched on sort of how to boost connection for people who are lonely. Yeah, I do agree with you. I do also think that loneliness is an epidemic and I do think it's increasing. 
you know, like every subsequent generation is like a little less social, a little less connected than the one before it. And while we do have technology that in theory connects one individual to like everyone they've ever met in their entire life, it hasn't abated the the increase of loneliness that people are experiencing. So you did say it was like the billion dollar question, but I am curious if you have any more thoughts on what the best thing is to do about the increasing loneliness that exists in the world. To me, it almost necessitates a radical shift in like how we organize society. I'm a little bit of like a love revolutionary, but I'm curious your perspective on how we turn the ship around. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, yeah, again, billion dollar question. Um, Well, I like, again, I'm a psychologist, so I focus on individuals. And so like my answer before to you was sort of about how to, you know, Maybe we could prompt people to help each other more, right? And that could reduce loneliness. But I also, this is not my area of expertise, but I also like the idea of designing communities and societies in a way that can reduce loneliness. And we already know quite a bit about that. Like if you live in an environment where you just happen to sort of pass your neighbors by or you're in contact with people just through your daily interactions, you know, maybe because there's a coffee shop, you know, across the street, you know, or, you know, basically designing places, right? And I actually was, um, a while ago, I was a consultant for a, kind of a secret, actually, we we're not supposed to even know where it is, but sort of a secret city um, in, <laughs> in, a, in a secret Ooh. country uh, where they're trying to design basically a happy city or, or neighborhood. And so we talked a lot about that, about sort of how do we design a, a neighborhood or a, kind of a city, a region where, you know, you kind of come into a lot of contact with other, a lot of people that you're sort of, you know, um, you don't have to, yeah. So not everyone's sitting in their homes and, you know, not, not, not. And so you have to, like, it's not just like you, even if you're a really super shy person, you're going to be connected with other people uh, sort of by the way that the neighborhood is designed, you know. So I kind of like that. I like that sort of environmental way, environmental, um, you know, design and how that can um, reduce loneliness or jobs where we, you know, you know, there's a lot of social support and sort of ways that we can um, constantly be in, not constantly, you know, but, but can be in touch with others when, when we want to. So, yeah, so I'm, I'm interested in, in those ways uh, as well as kind of the individual type of interventions uh, as well. But we all know, right, because we've all been in situations, maybe it was in college or maybe it was a certain job we had or maybe a certain vacation we had where we just felt like very socially connected by sort of the way that the environment was structured or our, our days were structured, right? And other times when we felt like, you know, it was really, really hard to to be to meet people or to be with others, right? So, so what can we? What lessons can we take from those um, from those sort of successful times in our lives and apply them to to other less successful times? So, we only have time for a couple more questions. So, I want to shift real quick to intimate relationships and loving relationships and the effect that these have on our well being, because. I recently had a therapist on the show and she says, yes, love brings out the best in people. It also brings out the worst. And it's true that like a loving relationship can be an incredible source of of happiness, but some turn sour, some turn abusive. Many people experience such a painful breakup that they swear off love altogether. So by and large, do relationships, intimate relationships, loving relationships, marriages, do they make us happier? Are they a source of happiness? And are there any characteristics of those that make us happier and those that don't? Mm. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure if I can, uh, if I'm the expert sort of to answer that question. You're absolutely right, by the way, sort of the source of like our greatest joys and our, you know, uh, 
lowest lows, right? Our, our relationships, but we are social animals. So relationships are, are very critical. Um, well, I will answer in one way, which is that my favorite theory this day, these days is called partner responsiveness theory that was developed by Harry Reese um, at the University of Rochester, uh, Reese, R-E-I-S. Um, and he argues that the key to relationships is when you and your partner feel understood, um, cared for, and uh, valued. And so those are the relationships where, right, where you where you're feeling seen and heard and understood. And I really think the understood component maybe is the most important one. Those are those are the most successful relationships. And how do you do that? That is really difficult, right? You need to really show genuine, authentic sort of interest in the other person. Which sometimes, even with long term intimate relationships, kind of you sort of take each other for granted, right? You don't you you know you might talk about your work days, but you know you're not truly like maybe there and listening and hearing or once when, when when your partner has a problem you validate their feelings so you don't just sort of try to give them advice and make it go away right uh, are you there yeah yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm uh, yeah um <laughs> <laughs> i'm just, just quiet. standing in awe at your wisdom <laughs> i love you. everything that you're saying thank so. you thank you so yeah so this the, again the key the key is to really feel seen and heard by sort of showing genuine interest by asking the right kind of questions i'm actually become obsessed recently about sort of this idea of like how we often don't really ask each other a lot of questions and whether it's in french with friendships or Coworkers or, or intimate relationships, where if our say our partner is telling us about something's happening with them at work or with one of the kids, like you know, are you really probing? Like, how are they really? What is really happening? You know, how do they how do they feel when that happened? You know, or what happened next? Or are we just kind of like uh huh uh huh right? We're not really like when we ask deeper questions. They don't have to be intrusive questions, but they're just kind of detailed questions. We're showing that we're truly listening and we're interested in what they have to say, right? Because we often have, we've all had the experience where we're sort of telling a story and then we kind of feel like the person, you know, they're, they're maybe making eye contact and they look like they're listening, but like, are they really, really, truly interested in the story without asking further questions? We don't know. So asking those questions and then, and then self-disclosure is also important for both partners to kind of reveal at least parts of ourselves to each other. That's, but maybe not, but at the right time and at the right moment, right? Not too much and not too little. So that's, there's kind of a little dance there that can happen with sort of how much self-disclosure is ideal in a, in a relationship or in a particular conversation. So, so anyway, lots and lots of dynamics that are critical to consider, you know, when you want to try to feel or make the other person feel really heard and seen and understood. But I think that's, I agree with Harry Reese that that's really key to relationships. Well, I appreciate your humility. You're like, I'm not an expert. Let me just give you this amazing, incredible advice. So thank you for that. I wholeheartedly agree that those happy relationships is where we feel understood, cared for, and valued. And that is the key to cultivating connection is we all need this love and connection with others to feel understood, recognized, and accepted for who we are. So thank you so much, Sonia, for coming on to the show. And I have to finish by asking a question I love to ask all of my guests, which is quite simply, what do you wish everyone knew about love? I think I would say what we were just talking about, that I think that love is a beautiful thing, um, <laughs> but to, to really maintain it, to continue to kindle it, I think it's important to make your partner feel heard, seen, and understood. Absolutely. Thanks again yeah. for coming on. And for our listeners who want to learn more about you, how can they find you? Thank you. I think just my website, which is sonialubomirsky.com, 
that's hard to spell, but they, they could just Google my name and I have lots yeah. of, you know, articles that they could download for free or read my books, uh, you know, whatever their interest is. Wonderful. And that'll be in the show notes. So don't worry Great. if you don't know how to write it down. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so thank you so much for coming on, for sharing your insight and wisdom. And you have just so many articles and books and insights into the world of happiness. And I appreciate you coming on. So thanks so much and take care. Thank you. It was a pleasure to talk to you, Zach. Bye-bye. Thanks again for listening to the Learn to Love podcast. To learn more about the show and your host, head over to ZachBeach.com or TheHeartCenter.com. You can also follow Zach on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.